BC's new COVID hotspot. It's a scary situation, you know, you hear all different things. The high rate of infection in Fernie. And how an unknown number of BC vaccines were spoiled. The search for a missing woman. I don't know her personally, but they're just such an incredible couple. Friends and neighbors come out in force trying to help. And battling with ICBC over a stolen truck. I have nothing of this vehicle except for pictures now. <laughs> and a headache and stress. Why she's forced to pay insurance for a vehicle she hasn't seen for months. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. And we start with breaking news. Premier John Horgan just announced there will be no interprovincial travel ban. We want to go directly to Keith Baldry now for more on this. Keith, a lot of communities have been raising concerns. We'll talk about mm -hmm. that in a moment. And on the opposite side, businesses have also been arguing against it. So where do we stand with the premier here tonight? Yeah, a statement just came out from the premier's office. Basically, John Horgan saying the review of legal options made it clear we can't prevent people from traveling to British Columbia. No big surprise here. He says most travel is, is uh, work-related. You can't uh, restrict people on that basis. And he also says public health officials say it's better to have people follow the public health orders uh, rather than uh, impose new mobility rules. But he also added this warning to people. Uh, take a look at this a statement from the, uh, from the uh, statement from John Horgan. If we see transmission increase due to interprovincial travel, we will impose stronger restrictions on non-essential travelers. We will continue to work with the tourism and hospitality sectors to make sure all possible safety precautions are in place. That's from Premier John Horgan. I think what he's referring to there, Chris, is the potential to have restrictions such as people being required to quarantine if they come into BC for non-essential purposes. We saw that at the beginning of the pandemic in the Atlantic provinces. They established the so-called Atlantic bubble. If you went into PEI, you had to isolate for 14 days. That's something I think he's hanging, hanging over the heads of non-essential travelers right now if the numbers increase as a result. Also, he met today virtually with other premiers and the prime minister. He says the prime minister is considering other international travel restrictions. And John Horgan says he's asked his fellow premiers to take the message back to their provinces and tell people in their own provinces, now is not the time to travel interprovincially to B.C. or anywhere else. Basically, stay where you are. All right. Thanks very much for the update there, Keith. Yeah. Well, now to Fernie, where those fears of out-of-province visitors carrying COVID are getting worse. The Elk Valley has a higher rate of infection than the provincial average, and residents were hoping for some relief. Catherine Urquhart reports. Located in the East Kootenai and encircled by the Rocky Mountains, Fernie is a gorgeous part of the world. Now, according to newly released numbers from BC's Center for Disease Control, it's also a growing hotspot for COVID infections. Well, I think the most alarming thing that's happening right now is that we're seeing the numbers rising. Fernie's 20 positive tests were returned between January 10th and 16th, up from just three the previous reporting period. Elk Valley Hospital's top doctor fears a community cluster. I think it's just doubly important now to, to revisit all the things that we have been asking and begging for going back eight months, uh, the, the distancing, the not getting together in groups, the, the masks, the hand washing. Some in this city of 5,200 are questioning whether non-residents are bringing in the virus, pointing to numerous license plates from across Canada and the United States. 
I know that we all have to have exercise, but you know, when the COVID is so rampant in Alberta and then they come over here to go skiing. I want to put this either to rest so that British Columbians understand that we cannot do that and we're not going to do that, or there is a way to do it and we're going to work with other provinces to achieve it. It's important to consider that many people with Alberta plates actually live and work in Fernie. This question of Albertans going to places like Fernie or Invermere has frankly been confusing since the very beginning. And municipal and provincial government uh, officials in British Columbia have sometimes been saying different things. And so ultimately, I think everyone would benefit from some very clear uh, guidelines and very clear rules. Although worried, Fernie's mayor is not inclined to point fingers. Instead, she's urging her community to do everything possible to limit transmission. Rather than focusing on our neighbours, or you know, even our neighbours down the street, by the way, um, who might be sheltering a loved one that's had to move in with them, there's, you know, if we just get back to that positive, kind, calm approach, I think we're going to really get ahead of this. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Nearly 105,000 British Columbians have now been vaccinated against COVID-19. Let's take a look at the latest infection numbers for B.C. We have 564 new cases today, bringing the provincial total to nearly 63,000. Sadly, 15 more people have died, which means we've now lost 1,119 people to complications of the virus. 309 people are in hospital, 68 of them in the ICU. And uh, just over 56,000 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 4,450 active cases and more than 6,800 people in isolation. Now, a new report says nearly 25,000 small businesses in B.C. are debating whether to close for good. Ted Chernecki has more on how one business owner is dealing with the massive financial burden caused by the pandemic. A short walk down just about any high street, and it's clear this is far from business as usual. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business recently surveyed its members and found 47% of small business isn't fully open, only 36% have normal staffing, and just 22% have normal sales. I don't think that business owners are exaggerating their um, concerns right now. And Consider what's going on in Ontario. You've got businesses that have been completely shut down since before Christmas. So they're starved of their oxygen because their oxygen is sales. Canada-wide, 20% or 2.4 million jobs are at risk. Alberta, 41% of its private workforce at risk. BC, 18%. The survey also suggests 70% of small business is very reliant on government subsidies. Because in typical times, businesses just don't even want to have anything to do with government subsidies, right? They just want to, you know, they just want government to keep taxes and, and regulation reasonable so they can keep on keeping on. Andrew Coffey is among the majority feeling the financial stress. No, we are not making any money. We are getting by, and uh, you know, most days I would say we're losing money. He falls into that category where some of his company, Hive Climbing and Fitness, doesn't qualify for government subsidies because it hasn't been in business for more than 18 months. What we really need is the government to step up and recognize that uh, businesses that have just taken the plunge have been planning this for years, potentially, and have been saving for years, and uh, they're working towards uh, the very same things that existing businesses are. Stats Canada has already identified 58,000 businesses that have closed for good as of September. March marks a year when the economy turned upside down, and that's a very long time for any business to be deprived of oxygen. Ted Chernecki, Global News. 
And we learned today a number of doses of vaccine were wasted when a Caribou First Nations community experienced a power outage. Power was knocked out along Highway 20 on Monday night, impacting Clettengox members. In a memo shared by the Anaheim Sage Health Clinic, the First Nations Health Authority says there was a break in, or sorry, a break in the cold chain for the Moderna vaccine that was being held in the community's vaccine fridge. The manufacturer determined the vaccine would not be usable. It's unknown how many vaccines were spoiled. We are getting a rare look inside tonight at the complicated and sometimes frustrating job of contact tracing during this pandemic. Global's Richard Zussman spoke to one healthcare professional who's right in the middle of the unprecedented mission. They are rarely seen, but play a crucial role in the province's fight against COVID-19. Meet Bridget Zonar, a contact tracer. Contact tracers are the cornerstone of what we're doing to try to mitigate transmission of COVID. For each positive COVID-19 case in BC, a contact tracer reaches out. They want to know who you've been in close contact with when infectious, and who could be at risk of getting the virus. So what does it take? to be a good contact tracer. Compassion, like anything in healthcare, um, the public is incredibly stressed out. Zoner's been working as a communicable disease nurse for the past six years. She's now leading the Vancouver Island contact tracing team. And every time you break the COVID rules, her job gets harder. We're doing the best we can, but it is a lot of work and the cases are increasing and the complexity is also increasing. So we really need everybody to do their part to help us do our part. The province has raised concerns about people not being honest about where they have been and who they've been with. And outside of Toronto, a doctor and her husband were charged for providing false information around their COVID case. So far, Zoner says she hasn't caught any liars. I feel like the general perception is that folks that are cases and contacts want to protect the people they love and want to protect the communities that they um, live and work in. This is how contact tracing works. If I get sick, all of my contacts, including Eli, need to be checked, and then all of his contacts also need to be checked. It is a central part of our effort. I think it's uniquely part of the British Columbia effort. And with active cases dropping, it shows contact tracing is working. But Zona and other contact tracers are aware of the balance, and any missed contact has the potential for COVID spread. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. It's an ICBC claim that seemed to get caught in the twilight zone. A Parksville couple had their truck stolen back in October. The RCMP say it's an open and shut case, but ICBC still hasn't closed the file. And that's not the only frustrating part of the story. Coming up next on the News Hour. The disgraceful end to a troubled term as Governor General Julie Payette resigns after a report exposing toxic behavior later on the News Hour. And a First Nations artist's interpretation of the coronavirus, his unique take on a COVID face mask coming up. Right now, though, a Parksville woman is sharing her story of the long and bizarre ICBC claim process that she has been going through. Her truck was stolen back in October, and even though she signed it over to ICBC for a write-off months ago, the insurer recommended she continues to pay for insurance. Aaron MacArthur reports. I'm not going to lie, I looked around the parking spot thinking I parked it in a different spot and I didn't realize. This is where Christy Crispin last saw her truck. The white F-250 was in the Woodgrove Mall parking lot in Nanaimo last October. She is still haggling with ICBC about her claim. 
I don't want a little bit of information. I want someone to give me some answers. ICBC took possession of Crispin's keys, and she signed away ownership of the truck to the Crown Corporation. Yet, she is still paying her insurance monthly. I sit up at night paranoid that what if something happens with this vehicle? What will that affect my life? How will that affect me financially? What's more, she has been sent her renewal notice. ICBC adjusters telling her she has to continue to pay until a hearing scheduled in June. The longer they take to get the claim, that means the longer they're benefiting from me paying for something that I don't have. I don't have and I don't know where it is. Crispin understands there is some delay expected with COVID and holidays. And she admits there was some incomplete information on her paperwork. She wasn't sure about the mileage. And she was wrong about how long she had owned the truck for. Hi, Christy. This is Lauren calling from ICBC. Coincidentally, ICBC adjusters called Crispin while she was being interviewed by our camera crew. I think we're going to be able to come to a resolution. In a statement, ICBC apologized for the delay and said it's reviewing the customer's request to cancel her insurance. She may be entitled to cancel it effective on the date of the vehicle loss and receive a refund. While there finally appears to be a solution, Crispin wants to know why it took so long to get a straight answer. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The mayor of Victoria is proposing a new program to help businesses in her city that have been damaged by vandals. A recent window smashing spree caused thousands of dollars in damage to more than a dozen businesses. And it's just the latest example. Kylie Stanton reports. The glass comes out and businesses are left to pick up the pieces. Brown's Florist here got hit pretty bad. Uh, another location just off of Cook Street there, one over on Browden. It's all becoming a little too routine for storefronts in downtown Victoria. Not again. <laughs> where vandalism is happening at an alarming rate. This is number three for us for broken windows, so. On Wednesday alone, police tallied 14 locations where glass was broken and expect there could be even more. The man seen here in this surveillance footage was arrested, well known to police. What are they doing? How come homeless people must stay here? In fact, he was taken into custody and released just one day earlier for yet another crime. He's known to us uh, for stealing a uh, Harbour Ferry water taxi the previous day. He is in custody and it's our hope that he is remanded. It only adds insult to injury for the businesses struggling to survive this pandemic. And so the city is stepping in, announcing the creation of a new grant program in partnership with the Downtown Victoria Business Association to support those affected. Council unanimously supported this proposal today uh, and we're going to uh, get to work with the DVBA to see what is possible to help businesses through this very challenging time and these really unfortunate and quite frankly senseless incidents. It comes as welcome news for business owners who've been asking for help. And I guess the city listened, which is great. But details are still scarce and in the meantime, experts say it's best to enhance protection. Things like this do highlight the need to provide those updates, do keep on top of your security situation, do take the time just to look over your, your own setup. Still, nothing will stop a rock from smashing through a piece of glass. And while funding can help fix the damage, there's concern it's simply a Band-Aid solution for a much larger issue at play. They're hungry, they're angry, they're upset about something and Clearly, we're not meeting their needs. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Still ahead, found money. 
the employees were sorting through some bags that had been donated. Stacks of decades-old cash totaling up thousands discovered in an old handbag. What happens to it now, coming up? But first, the baffling disappearances of two women, unconnected but troubling for both frantic families. Busy in both directions over here at the Vitello Bridge tonight. There's a stall northbound at mid-span in the left lane. Northbound traffic out of Surrey is slow from the Scott Road merge. Save on foods and save on time. Shop online, then swing by for quick, safe, and free curbside pickup. Super savings online now at saveonfoods.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Traveled from the prairies to Vancouver to find his daughter, 24-year-old Chelsea Poorman, was last seen on the Granville Strip in September, but she hasn't been seen or heard from since. Paul Johnson has more on what the father is planning to do to find her. On the tough sidewalks of Granville Street, Michael Kiernan is in the search of his life. I'm going to uh, be on call 24-7 and I'm going to find her. Kiernan drove out from Saskatoon a few days ago. His plan is to live out of his van while he tries to piece together the story of what happened to his adoptive daughter, 24-year-old Chelsea Poorman, last seen September 6th. I understand they came to the Hotel Belmont and then had a couple drinks here. The focus of Kiernan's personal investigation is the few blocks of Granville Street between the bar where Chelsea and her sister went on that late summer night and a nearby apartment where they went to hang out with friends. That's where Chelsea and her sister got separated. They were in an apartment on the fourth floor and Chelsea came down from there and that's the last known location of Chelsea Parman. Vancouver police didn't have an update when Global News checked Thursday. Though Poorman's family say homicide detectives are now on the case, though still technically a missing persons investigation. I think I can talk to everybody that's been in this apartment building. I think I can do one hell of a poster campaign. I think I can knock on quite a few doors and, uh, and just go over everything that, uh, that's, that happened from, from the start. Kiernan has no background in detective work and limited resources and says he's running only on grief and his love for his daughter. You know, if uh, Chelsea's there and if she's around, she knows I'm coming for her. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Port Moody police and a number of volunteers there say they're not giving up the search for a missing woman there. 48-year-old Trina Hunt was last seen Monday morning, and friends and family tell Global News they're very worried about her and that her disappearance is very much out of character. Ramina Dea reports. No trace of Trina Hunt for days. The 48-year-old vanished Monday. Hunt's husband, the last to see her in the early morning hours of January 18th at their home in the Heritage Mountain area of Port Moody. When he returned from work, the house was empty. He called 911. I work with her husband and uh, he is so incredibly lovely and so it's heartbreaking that he's missing someone so important to him. I didn't know her, but just being a part of our community. And um, yeah, we just felt the need to come out and do what we can. An army of community volunteers has mobilized. It's been a steady stream, which I welcome. I am so happy to see that. I would prefer that than silence and no one showing up. 
Residents fanning out with flyers, searching trails, hunting for surveillance footage, and dropping off supplies, including food, hand sanitizer, and socks. It could have been me. We're close in age. Uh, you know, we're living in the same area. I go for walks all the time uh, in the area. So I think that you're right. It's just someone from the neighborhood. It could be any of us. Coquitlam search and rescue crews scoured the dense wooded terrain for two days. But the search has been called off. No explanation why. We've been told to address all questions to Port Moody police. The police, however, not commenting on camera Thursday. Hunt's loved ones tell us the disappearance is completely out of character. A Facebook post states she didn't stray from main roads and stuck to very common trails. Hunt apparently left home without her keys or cell phone. Hunt is petite, five foot four, 120 pounds. She's wearing a black North Face puffy jacket with a green collar and distinctive pink and purple shoes. If anyone in the area uh, has any information, it would be incredible if they could reach out. The community determined to bring Hunt home. Romina Dea, Global News. Residents of a Kelowna condo building say they're fed up after a string of break-ins and the assault of a senior who tried to stop the thieves. On January 5th, surveillance video captured two men breaking into an emergency lockbox at Carmel Court and stealing an entrance fob and master key. In the following days, the building was targeted repeatedly until the locks could be changed. Then, this past Saturday, a resident of the building, a man in his 70s, came across a burglar. He called 911 and followed the man, who then charged and attacked him. It's a huge concern because we're a 50-plus building. Most of the people in here are well past 50, into their 70s and 80s, and uh, they're scared. They're, they're genuinely scared. CMP say a 36-year-old man was taken into custody but has since been released. Up next, the first full day on the job for Joe Biden. We didn't get into this mess overnight. It's going to take months for us to turn things around. What the U.S. president is doing to make up for lost time in the fight against COVID. And Governor General Julie Payette is out. The workplace scandal that forced her to resign coming up. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross, flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. Watching the very first Boeing 737 MAX jet land safely in Vancouver this morning after taking off from Calgary, the jet's return to the skies comes after Transport Canada reviewed and approved major changes to its software. The planes were grounded in March of 2019 when they were involved in two fatal crashes in five months. 346 people were killed, including 18 Canadians. Investigators say faulty sensor systems led to those crashes. Julie Payette is out as Canada's Governor General. She resigned today following a damning report into the workplace culture at Rideau Hall. Sources tell Global News the independent review of workplace harassment allegations painted a scathing portrait of Payette. It came after a series of allegations were made against the Governor General by current and former staffers, and they made those uh, allegations to several media organizations. 
Payette, a former astronaut, was appointed in 2017 in a process that has repeatedly faced scrutiny over whether she was appropriately vetted before being named to that prestigious post. Payette's secretary, who has also been accused of harassing employees, is also stepping down. The first full day of the new Biden administration set the agenda for the U.S. president's first 100 days in office and charted a new course for tackling the never-ending COVID-19 crisis. But as Global's Reggie Cicchini explains, the plan to vaccinate many more Americans, a key campaign promise, has already run into some problems. The first 100 days set the tone for a president's four-year term. Mr. President. Joe Biden is sprinting into his agenda, undertaking a Herculean effort to undo four years of policies that targeted immigration and climate change efforts and confront a deadly pandemic. We didn't get into this mess overnight. It's going to take months for us to turn things around. Across America, COVID-19 deaths are soaring, hospitals are at capacity, and states are stuck in a deadly holding pattern. Double, triple what you're sending us. We're ready to provide the vaccines. Vaccine development was speedy, but the former administration is now accused of failing to leave a detailed playbook for mass distribution. For the past uh, year, we couldn't rely on the federal government to act, and we have seen the tragic cost of that failure. President Biden still intends to vaccinate 100 million people in the first 100 days, but the CDC is proceeding with cautious optimism. I also want to be very cognizant of the fact that after 100 days, there are still a lot of Americans who need vaccine. Biden will order increased production to get vaccines rolled out. He's also implemented a mask mandate. But the battle requires a global effort. And Biden intends to put America back in that fight. The United States will remain a member of the World Health Organization. We are all glad that the United States is staying in the family. It's a seismic shift from the America First policies of Donald Trump and highlights Joe Biden's key message of unity. In the work ahead of us, we're going to need each other. To further mitigate the spread of COVID-19, the president has also signed an executive order asking the Canadian government to investigate enhanced health screenings at land border crossings, though it's unclear what that would look like. It would be in addition to requiring all foreign travelers flying into the U.S. to test negative before boarding a plane. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. More than 100,000 British Columbians we mentioned earlier have now rolled up their sleeves to get their first shot of the COVID vaccine. The details of the next phase of the rollout are expected tomorrow morning. But in the meantime, a new survey has found many British Columbians aren't happy with the government's vaccine distribution so far. John Waugh has the details. It's a queue most British Columbians are waiting to join with common anticipation. But the province's decisions on what groups should be given priority doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have left many divided. We all know that we're all not going to be able to get the vaccine when we want to. So they're, you know, we're all fighting over our position in that. According to an Insights West survey, BC's overall vaccination rollout plan was met with fair to very poor reviews from 52% of those who participated, while 35% rated it good or excellent. This is the first time that we've seen in the pandemic that we've... Uh, We've seen the general public not support the provincial government on COVID-19 related initiatives. One of the biggest sticking points. <coughs> certain groups of people or occupations many felt should be prioritized over the general population. About 70% of the population feels that those with pre-existing medical conditions should have been on this initial list of uh, about 11 different subgroups. Based on those surveyed, 
51% thought police should be moved up the line. 47% felt firefighters should be given higher priority. While 50% took exception to the placement of teachers. Teachers are frontline workers. We often don't think of ourselves that way, but we are. And we're in a unique situation where protections that are offered other workers are not offered to teachers. And nearly a third feel those at provincial correctional facilities shouldn't be getting the vaccine as early as February or March. This time around, the population has a little bit of reservation as far as not only the rank order of who's receiving the vaccine, but also some uh, what people feel are kind of blatant misses. With four out of five British Columbians wanting the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it's available, there will no doubt continue to be plenty of debate over who should get the next dose. John Hua, Global News. Still to come on the news hour, stealing the show. I don't just like poetry, I love poetry. Amanda Gorman puts poetry in the spotlight, how she's dealing with her newfound fame. And a modern twist on traditional First Nations art, how even the artist admits his coronavirus creation is not for everyone. A BC First Nations artist has used his talents to create a traditional Indigenous mask to represent the COVID-19 pandemic. As Linda Aylesworth reports, it's a project that follows in the footsteps of his ancestors who also used their art to depict important times throughout history. Ceremonial masks of the Northwest Coast have long played an important role in First Nations culture. My people have created these masks for many, many years, and some of them are traditional where they portray ancient stories, ancient characters. And some, like the ones David Neal carves, that portray contemporary issues in traditional style, like his oil spill mask and his nuclear disaster mask. A lot of people criticized me, both curators and uh, art professionals and even some of the artists. They said that wasn't uh, traditional, that isn't what Northwest Coast artists do. David comes from a long line of Kwakutl artists, but when he was just a baby, his father died, and his mother moved them away to Alberta. In time, he found himself in Texas, apprenticing as a photographer. One day I went into a museum in Fort Worth, Dallas, and I seen a mask, a Kwakwakiwak mask, but it was by my great-great-grandfather. The discovery inspired David to return to BC and become a carver himself, to ignore the criticism and create masks like the digital trickster. In the eye of the uh, digital trickster mask is uh, the zeros because, of course, digital information is zeros and ones. Then came COVID-19. As it grew in magnitude and the impact became wider, uh, I, you know, I realized I had to do a piece about it. It was a challenge that took six months to complete. The final mask, a foreboding face with red spikes, like the ones on the real virus. I wanted to use contemporary and traditional elements to bring them together in that mask. And I thought that was what was going to speak to it, that the issue most eloquently. Since David Neal started carving 33 years ago, a lot has changed in coastal native art, change he helped to bring about. We have a greater range of expression, and we're seeing that manifested today, which I think is wonderful. We didn't have that when I was a young artist. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Amazing work. All right, let's check in uh, now with Christy and a look at the weather. I know we're still a couple days out, but uh, we could get a blast of winter coming up pretty soon here.
That's exactly right. So Environment Canada has officially put out the heads up. That's a special weather statement for the South Coast area. This is what they're calling for. Again, this is Saturday night into Sunday morning. We're talking about 5 to 15 centimeters for inland sections of Vancouver Island and the East Coast. You'll note that Victoria, Southern Gulf Islands, not included in that. That doesn't mean you won't see snow, but it likely will be in that 0 to 5 range. And then Sunshine Coast and Metro Vancouver, we're talking about 2 to 5. As Chris said, though, we're still days out and there's still uncertainty around which areas we'll see it and how much. So make sure you keep tuning back in. In the meantime, boy, today was gorgeous. Double digits in Metro Vancouver, five degrees above average. The buds, the flowers are starting to come out. When that cold air shifts in, it's going to be hard for them to manage. Cooler air has shifted into the interior. These are back to near seasonal values. And tonight, wind chills in many regions, minus five to minus 15 in the interior. And out through the Fraser Valley and east Metro Vancouver, we'll see gusty winds. So we're talking about wind chills tonight and again tomorrow night about minus five minus six now we still have lots of sunshine on the way during the day tomorrow and into saturday but there's that wave saturday night and you'll note the green that indicates the rain so some areas may see just a mix of rain and snow it is going to be quite variable across the region but likely away from the water uh, not only in vancouver island and across the mainland regions that's where we'll see the bulk of that snowfall even into monday and tuesday we have a chance of showers or flurries so if you don't see the snowfall Saturday night. You still have a couple more possibilities into next week. In the meantime, enjoy the sunshine. Pull out the sunglasses. You may need to bundle up a little bit more tomorrow, though. Temperatures are certainly dropping in the coming days. And it's not only tomorrow that we'll see the sunshine, but a good part of Saturday also. That wave or the first chance of snow is Saturday night into Sunday. All right, here, Leah, I'll leave you with your central windows weather window, which was from today, a little bit of a high-level cloud, and that created a beautiful halo around the sun. And you can see a bit of a rainbow in that halo. Thank you to Reggie and Nancy for that one. Faint colors for sure, but that's really cool. Thank you. All right, a pair of Value Village employees helped return a very large sum of money to its rightful owner. Vancouver police say the employees at a value village on Venables in East Vancouver were sorting through donated bags when they found this, more than $85,000 in cash. They contacted police and officers started an investigation and after some digging, they were able to identify the owner who lived in a nearby care home and are reuniting them with the money. This is found money. Who knows what they could have done with it? We're so thankful, and I'm sure the, the family is so thankful that these people did the right thing. They contacted the police. We were able to track down the rightful owners, and uh, we're, we're in the process of returning it to them. Vancouver police say they've contacted the family and will be returning their cash very shortly. If you were sharp-eyed, you noticed a lot of those bills aren't even recognizable by today's standards. Some of them date back to the 1950s. I'm sure they'll be happy to get it back. <laughs> All right, uh, Squire is here with a look ahead to sports. There was a $1 bill. Strange, right? I saw there. A there are generation, yeah, generations of, a generation of people out there who probably have never seen one. Could you even spend that, I wonder now? If you, walked in with a, if you walked in with a $1 bill and the person behind the till was young, they'd be like, hey, what is that? Yeah, <laughs> they'd think it's counterfeit. Um, last night, it was a fun game last night. It ended the way the Canucks wanted it to end as well. Tyler Toffoli in a must-score situation. Hit the post and the Canucks win. We have rematch written down because they're playing a game tonight, except tonight the Canucks are going to be missing two veteran defensemen. 
Also tonight, the performance poetry that's making Amanda Gorman a household name. A happy ending last night for the Canucks. Let's see what happens tonight. Here's Squire. Yes, tonight is the rematch of last night's 6-5 win by Vancouver in a shootout against Montreal. That was a fun game to watch. Not a lot of defense in that one. And speaking of not a lot of defense, uh, the Canucks will be missing a couple of defensemen tonight. Travis Hamannick and Alex Edler both got hurt last night. That means Ole Olevi, who didn't play last night, is back in the lineup. And they've moved Brogan Rafferty into the lineup as well. Okay, Jets and Senators... This one just ended, and this is in Ottawa. It's already 1-0 Winnipeg. Now it's 2-0 because Mark Scheifele has scored a goal here. And then Blake Wheeler with moves. Very impressive. In close, in tight, still makes the move to the backhand, and the Jets win this by the score of 4-1. to Hey, tonight is a big night for Bowen Byram, the former Vancouver Giants defenseman. He will start his first-ever NHL game with Colorado as they take on the L.A. Kings. Now, today, Major League Soccer held its annual Super Draft. The Caps' first pick was forward David Egbo uh, of the University of Akron. He's actually from Nigeria, but played his... University Soccer in Ohio, scored 21 goals in 56 games. When he gets here, well, we don't know when that's going to be. The Whitecaps would normally already be training for the coming season, which would start in March, but of course this year is much different. The majority of their players who would be considered starters aren't even in Vancouver yet, and they don't even have a schedule yet. And into Freddie Montero, and he buries his fourth of the season. That was the last goal the Whitecaps scored, November 8th against the LA Galaxy in their 2020 season finale. It's anyone's guess when they'll get a chance to score their first goal of the 2021 season. First of all, they need a training camp and a schedule. And right now, none of those exist, as the league tries to navigate when would be a good time to start. They would love to safely get fans into the stands, but that may mean a late spring or even early summer start. Every day we are going into this uh, year uh, is a day where more more people in the world are getting the vaccine and and we have more time to fight the virus. That maybe also helps us to to come to a level of uh, having fans in the stands, crossing the border, and all those things. But yeah, again, a lot of uh, uncertainty. In the meantime, the Caps have a lot of time on their hands. All they can really do is stay patient and try to entice more talent to join the team. But even that's complicated these days. It's still a world of COVID and still of uncertainties in the transfer market. Uh, recruitment has been a roller coaster. Uh, and it's just the reality of where we're at in the world. With no start line in place, it's challenging for the players. All they can do is maintain conditioning and try to keep a positive attitude with what seems to be yet another unique season ahead. It's more about keep, keeping them engaged towards having the best body and shape possible for when we start. That's the only thing we could do right now in assisting the player and their families uh, to make sure they're well. That's what we do as a club. So will we see a goal? Well, something happened today in Liverpool that hasn't happened since April of 2017. Liverpool lost a home game. Mo Salah couldn't score there against Nick Pope. And Ashley Barnes was pulled down. And Burnley, of all teams, 
pulled the upset in Liverpool. One nothing, the final. First round of the American Express from uh, Palm Springs. Jimmy Walker. Another guy that's been working really hard on From the fairway at 18. 158 yards out. A couple of tweaks to his I guess I could say dynamite since it's Jimmy Walker, but it's not that Jimmy Walker. But it was dynamite nonetheless. That's an eagle. How about this on the 17th? It's a par three. I've played this course actually a few years ago. Matthew Wolf hits the rocks. Thump! And, and that's a PGA bounce. If it had been any of us, no. Uh, Brandon Hagee leads at minus eight. Nick Taylor uh, tied for 15th at minus four. Roger Sloan minus three. And uh, Adam Hadwin an even par 72. Patrick Mahomes at Kansas City Chiefs practice. But this doesn't mean he's okay yet to play Sunday against Buffalo. But it looks like he is trending in the right direction. However, he is still, despite what you see here, in concussion protocol. There you be. All right, Squire, thanks very much. And here's Andrew on standby with a preview of Global News at 11 tonight, Ann. Thanks, Chris. We're digging deeper into B.C.'s overdose crisis. We'll speak with a northern B.C. mayor about what could be behind a sharp increase in cases in his community. We'll also hear from a paramedic on what it's like to be called to an overdose. And we'll hear from one of the people who found more than $80,000 cash and turned it in. Those stories and Canucks highlights when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock, Chris. All right, thanks very much, Anna. When we come back, a profile of that emerging poetry superstar, Amanda Gorman. That's next. Amanda Gorman is quickly becoming a household name after her powerful inauguration poem at the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday. That is the reaction of the 22-year-old when she found out today her two books of poetry have surged to the top of Amazon's bestseller list and they haven't even been released yet. That's not coming till the fall. And while she's taking all of the attention and the praise in stride, she admits that she has big plans for her future. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. With her poem aptly named The Hill We Climb, 22-year-old Amanda Gorman became the youngest poet to speak at a presidential inauguration Wednesday in the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. Gorman's stirring performance was met with a standing ovation. On a day for the history books, former President Obama tweeted, Amanda Gorman delivered a poem that more than met the moment. I don't just like poetry. I love poetry and I live it. Gorman told us last week that she learned about the inauguration performance in December. I was sitting on it for a really long time, even kind of nervous about telling my mom because I knew she would want to shout it from the rooftops because it was just such an amazing opportunity. A nation of all people, by all people. Though it's hard to imagine now, performing did not come easily to her. 
as a young child, as a toddler growing up, I had a speech impediment. How long did you have that speech impediment? Oh, gosh. I would say through sophomore year of college, when you have to teach yourself how to pronounce the American alphabet, when you have to teach yourself over years how to say your own last name, you gain a real appreciation for the musicality um, and the complexity of sound. So often people say, wow, it's amazing that you've done all of this despite your speech impediment. I say, I've done all of it because of that experience. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. I'm also struck by the fact that, that you said you would like to be yourself president one day. Oh yeah, I'll be back. You will. <laughs> this will be the first rodeo, but it won't be the last one, yeah. <laughs> have you already made your campaign plans? I have. My kind of hashtag is going to be hashtag commanda in chief, because, you know. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Play on words, because that's what I do. Anthony Mason, CBS News, New York. The confidence and a good sense of humor, too, which will take her a long way in politics. All right, uh, last word on weather before we go, Christy. Sure, lots of sunshine in store for us tomorrow and through a good part of Saturday. It's not till late Saturday into the evening hours that we'll start to see increasing cloud. And I'm really hoping for all the kids out there that we see some snow on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Be nice to get the toboggans out, wouldn't it? Yeah, it sure would. Be a lot of fun. All right, well, we'll stay tuned and see what happens. Thanks very much for watching, everybody. Have a good night.